Luke chapter 15. Just a few weeks, we'll start our study through 1 Samuel, um, but we are throughout the year looking at the different parables that Jesus taught throughout the gospel. Today we're going to look at the parable of the lost, the lost sheep and the lost coin. So if you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word as I read uh, verses 1, beginning in verse 1 through verse 10, Luke chapter 15. Hear the word of Christ. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what if a woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Oh God, we pray today that you would teach us the joy of repentance. God, we pray today that you would wreak havoc on our self-righteousness. God, as we come before you with so many things that we try to hold up to you as things that, that make you more happy with us. God, I pray that you would remind us that all of the righteousness we have that comes from in us that we hold up to you is like filthy rags. It won't work. And yet there's great joy in repenting and turning from our filthy rags, turning from our sin and turning to Christ. There is great joy here and there is great joy before your throne. And God, I pray that when we leave today, we would know the joy of heaven over repentance. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It was one of the longest nights of my life. I was planning on skipping the last day of school to go bass fishing with my uncle in the Tennessee River. We did that quite often, and I'd convinced my parents that that was a good thing to do, and spending time with my uncle outside instead of wasting time on the last day of school. And 
I got a call from my mom. Now, I didn't have a cell phone or anything. I was at my grandmother's, and the phone rang, and I picked up the phone, and my mom seemed scared and frightened on the other end of the line, and she said, have you seen your sister? She told me she was going to a friend's house, and she never showed up there. Now, that's very odd, because my sister's one of the sweetest, kindest, most obedient people I've known. She was, she's not one to get in trouble or uh, break rules. And immediately, we began calling all the friends that we uh, knew, thought that she may have gone somewhere else, and tried, began looking for my sister, and uh, we pieced together some crazy story that after school, she had left with some guy in a white Camaro. I don't know how that story came to be or where it came from because it wasn't true at the end of the day, um, but we continued to believe it throughout the night as we searched for my sister, and I was thinking about this this week, and this was before social media or cell phones, so it was a really difficult task to try to figure out where in the world did my sister go after school? Uh, there were no, no, you couldn't post something on social media. I thought if that happened today, what would you do? Well, you'd just, you'd begin to connect with all kinds of people. You couldn't do it then. And I even remember uh, the police telling us, well, we have to wait 24 hours and, and all of that before we uh, issue some search in that way. And each place we went to that night looking for my sister, I remember the story just kind of mounted and it got more severe and more dangerous uh, we, we sort of began telling ourselves the worst case scenario. I, I remember going to one of our friends' house and them looking at me like I was crazy and asking if my sister was there. And the, the dad said, no, your sister's not here. I haven't seen her. And I said, do you mind if I come in and look? <laughs> he said, sure. And he took me to all the rooms and she wasn't there. And so the next morning, we, we waited at the middle school for her, because she was in middle school at the time. And all of a sudden, she gets out of a car, and she begins to walk toward the school. And the whole school starts celebrating, because many of them had heard this story and had been looking for her. Teachers were crying, like, oh, we found her. And I turned and looked at my mom, and I could see the look of shock on her face. And it had dawned on her, oh yeah, she told me where she was going. <laughs> she told me exactly what she was doing after school. And by the way, there was no white Camaro anywhere involved in the story. And my mom at the time was in nursing school and she was raising two teenagers and so she was really stressed. But that is par for the course for my mom. She forgets a lot of things in that way, but she was really stressed during that time. But it didn't matter to my sister. Because if you want to embarrass a teenage girl, create a crisis around her life that's not true. And then have the whole school rejoicing at her arrival the next day. <laughs> and she has no idea what is going on. And I'll never forget how she, she didn't forgive my mom for weeks. She, she wasn't excited about people being glad she was there because she wasn't lost. She had done nothing wrong. There was no need for us to search through the night for her. There was no need for us to panic 
and create a crisis. She wasn't lost. In its exact same way, the religious feel when Jesus is preaching and teaching about the lost. When he is calling people to this great celebration, I'm here, I found you. The religious of the day are looking at him like, what are you talking about? There is no need for a celebration, maybe a celebration of our righteousness. We're not lost. We don't need to be found. And they're almost embarrassed at times. They're not humored by Jesus' teaching of repentance and, and, and this call to follow him, that their righteousness isn't good enough. They don't see themselves lost, and so they are missing the message, and they are missing out on the joy of the celebration that's before them. It makes no sense to them. And something else that doesn't make any sense is the crowd that begins to follow Jesus. We see in our text the very thing that got Jesus killed. It was the sort of people that began to follow after him that offended the religious of the day. They could have said, you know, he's just some moron. He's just some fool, some crazy homeless man preaching this nonsense. But he claimed to be a rabbi, a teacher of the law. And then he began to associate with crowds that offended the religious of the day. Notice verse 1. Now the tax collectors. Now, when we think tax collectors, it doesn't really offend us that much. We're used to singing Zacchaeus was a wee little man and it's sort of a cartoon way of thinking about tax collectors. But tax collectors were the crooks of the day. They were the worst of the worst. They were hired by the Roman government to tax the people and anything beyond what Rome required that they could get from the people, they could keep for themselves. And so they would raise taxes and they would rip people off for their own benefit. They were the crooks. They were the traitors. They worked for this government that pillaged and oppressed the Jews. And they were the lowest of the lowest who really didn't even care that they were scoundrels. And people hated them. And here they're coming after Jesus. Here they are following after Jesus. Tax collectors, and then this word sinners, it, it really just means outcast. It, it is the party crowd. It's the prostitutes. It's the drunkards. It, it's those who even are sick and diseased. It's just a category for those who are considered outcast in society. The scourge of the society. And notice the text says they are drawing near to Jesus. Now Luke puts that here strategically. Because Jesus has just taught about this heavenly banquet. And he says, I want you to go out and I want you to invite everyone. And at the end of the story, only the lame, the crippled, the outcast show up at the party. And, and as the sinners hear that story, that invitation, they hear Jesus calling them to himself. And so they begin to come. And Luke places this parable, these parables here, to show us what's going on. As the scourge of the society begin to come out to Jesus, they haven't heard a distant message from the Savior, by the way. They haven't heard a message that pushes them away. Tax collectors, sinners, the worst in the culture are coming out to Him. 
to be received by him. That is the, the, the image that is before the religious of the day that begins to make them seethe in anger. Notice verse 2. The Pharisees and scribes. Now, these are the two common, two common opponents of Jesus. The Pharisees, they prided themselves in obeying the law. They were experts in what the law required. And they were so committed to the law and doing what the law, the Ten Commandments, summarized in the Ten Commandments, what it communicated, making sure that they did it, that they added on top of the law their own traditions, ways in which they could make sure they were obeying the Sabbath, ways in which they could make sure they were giving to the temple, ways in they, they could make sure they were doing the right thing. They added their own legalism, their own laws to the law of God. And their traditions eventually became more important than the law itself. And that's why Jesus, when he would see them out in front of the temple, they would ring bells as they would give to the temple of God. They wouldn't even help folks if, if someone was in trouble or in danger on the Sabbath. They would walk right by as we talked about last week. And when Jesus would see such activity, he would say, your traditions, they, they, they make you into these whitewashed tombs. You look like a pretty coffin. On the outside, you look really expensive and nice. But guess what's on the inside? Dead men's bones. You're really dead. And your religion is this exterior. And notice the scribes here. They knew the law backwards and forward. And they were responsible for making sure that everyone interpreted the law correctly. They protected the integrity of the law. They, they wanted to make sure everyone was doing it right. And Jesus would say to this group, you search the scriptures because you're looking for eternal life in your interpretation, your application. These are they that testify of me. And you're missing me as you study the scriptures. The law, the tradition, the things that they do, the things that they taught had trumped true, genuine spirituality. And here Jesus stands before them as the law in flesh and they miss Him because of what they're doing. And so when they see tax collectors and sinners marching out to Jesus, they say, see, look, He doesn't know the law. He calls himself a rabbi. And they begin to go over to the side and they begin to grumble. Notice the word grumble about Jesus. It's this sort of off-to-the-side gossip where they are trying to mar Jesus' reputation to make themselves look better. But notice what, what they see of him. This man receives sinners. He embraces them. And he eats with them. Meals were, 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 were a sign of the most intimate fellowship, hospitality. And here Jesus is receiving sinners. That was scandalous to them. It would, it would be like us seeing Billy Graham eating with Bruce Jenner. Or Caitlin, whatever you want to call him, her. You would go, oh, that's awful. What is he doing? And notice what they do. They begin to grumble over to the side. How could he do that? Now, I'm not saying he's doing anything wrong himself. 
But he does dine with prostitutes and tax collectors. And we see the point here that the kingdom attracts the worst sinners. One of the things we have to be very careful of when we read the Bible is the socially religious and conservatives of the day were actually Jesus' enemies. They were his opponents. And the most sinful, rebellious of the day were Jesus' friends. The, the meth addicts. Pants sagging. Transgender. Smell like marijuana smoke. That's what you would have seen and saw and smelled and heard if Jesus walked the earth now. What side of Jesus would you fall on when you saw that? Because that's exactly the picture that Luke describes for us. And a bigger question for us here today is, does your Christianity draw or repel those who obviously need the gospel? As you look at your life and you see folks whose lives are a mess, they are wrecked with sin... They have made horrible decisions in their life. They are the logo for rebellion. Are they drawn to you or repelled by you? Because they see something they need in your gospel. Or do they see this high and mighty religion that pushes them away? Notice what happens when Jesus, the kingdom, comes forth. It draws the most sinful to himself. And so the guy in your office who is bragging Monday morning about his escapades over the weekend, when he gets tired of that life, when he can't be fulfilled in that life anymore, who's he going to come to? Who's he going to talk to? Does he see anything in your life that's going to draw, draw him to the gospel? That single mom that smells like pot smoke horrible decisions, tells you about them all the time. Can't believe I did this, can't believe I did that next to you at the ball game. When she gets tired of that lifestyle, when she, when she realizes she can't fix it, who's she going to come to? Who is she going to talk to? That homosexual couple that moved in down the street. When, when, when you think about that, do you just grumble to yourself? Ugh. Murmuring. Or do you understand it could just be that God placed them in your neighborhood to draw them to himself. And you're missing the kingdom. You're missing what Jesus is doing right in front of you in drawing the worst and drawing the lost to himself. You're missing out on what Jesus does. He draws the worst sinners to himself. And he says, okay, if you guys don't get it. Now, the thing about Jesus so often is we hear the Pharisees and religious elite sort of grumbling over to the side. And it's as if Jesus often looks out of the corner of his eyes and he goes, I know what they're doing. Someone tell y'all a story loud enough where they can hear it. Because they need to learn. And he says, Luke says, he told them a parable. Now remember what a parable was or is. It is a short story or illustration that's thrown alongside of the kingdom. So the kingdom is working right in front of you. And that's what they see. Sinners coming to the kingdom. And so Jesus says, I'm going to tell you a story so you can see the kingdom right in front of you. 
Because a lot of you are missing it. You don't understand how this could be kingdom activity, tax collectors, sinners being drawn to Jesus. You don't understand that. So I'm going to tell you a parable so that you do see it. And he tells this parable, verse 4, What man of you, if you had a hundred sheep, now this is probably a shepherd who's given oversight over a flock, and if he had lost one sheep, he, what, what man would not leave the 99 in open country where they're safe, they can be seen, they can be accounted for, and go after the one that is lost? The 99 don't need to be found. The lost one needs to be found. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder and he comes back rejoicing to the flock. That, that's what shepherds do. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Sheep aren't smart animals. And sheep are nasty. I know we have cartoon pictures. They're white and they're fluffy and they're cute. But they had this wool that would get dirty and nasty and they would begin to stink. Sheep couldn't protect themselves. Sheep couldn't protect themselves. It's not like they had fangs that came out of their mouth and horns, little little nice white sheep. That's not the way that they look. We we don't just go hunting for wild lambs and sheep. They don't exist. They They get killed in the wild. Now, some of you are going to talk about the different species of goats and all that. You're missing the point. (laughs) Little white sheep can't take care of themselves. You don't tell your kids when they're little to count wolves. Why? Wolves are scary. You tell them to count sheep because they're not scary. They can't protect themselves. And so if one is lost, the shepherd has to drop everything and go on a search and rescue mission. He, he leaves the open field, moves through thickets and trees, ready to fight lions and bears for this one sheep that he places on his shoulder and brings back to the fold, secure and happy. And notice verse 6, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And so he, he comes home relieved. I finally found him. I searched and searched, and I finally found him. We're going to have a sheep hoopla, have a celebration, a party, because I found my lost sheep. Now, if you're like me, and you're like the religious Pharisees, scribes here, you go, well, that was a waste of time and money. It's just one sheep. I mean, that's just the cost of business when you're a shepherd. You're going to lose one every now and then. And here you are throwing a party? That party probably cost more than the time and energy that it took to go searching for this lost lamb. You wasted your time and you're wasting your money now celebrating about it. You should have just cut your losses and moved on. Can't win them all. And that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees would be thinking. And the point here is not the value or the cost of the lost sheep. It's what the shepherd does. It's the character of the shepherd. Firemen put out fires. They're not defined by the thousands of homes that are safe and sound. Firemen are defined by putting out fires and running in and rescuing that one family. That's what they're in the newspaper for or on Twitter for. They're known for rescue. 
And here he says, that's what the shepherd's known for, rescue. That is his identity. That is his character. As a parent, I have six kids, and we constantly lose a few. (laughs) You've heard the stories. We've lost Jonah at Wendy's and the Y. Jonah's just called the lost boy. Like we... (laughs) It's his responsibility now to tell us when he's lost. (laughs) We lose kids a lot. And if you're a parent, that's going to happen. Relax. It's okay as long as they, as long as you find them. (laughs) But as a parent, you're not, you you don't stand around and go, well, at least I got five. (laughs) That's, you know, that's what, 90% maybe? I don't know. That's good. I don't, I failed algebra one twice, so I don't know math. But you you don't stand around and go, I got five. No, your parenting will be defined by losing that one. I promise. (laughs) And and that's exactly what Jesus is trying to teach here. The the shepherd is defined by the lost one. What he will do to find the lost one. That's who he is. He risks his life. He, he, he goes out in the danger zone, uh, ready to fend off lions and bears for the one because that's what defines him. He is a shepherd who searches and finds. The parable is not about the lost sheep. The, shep- the, the parable is about the shepherd searching and finding the lost. The, 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 the outcasts, the sinners of the day, they're not coming to Jesus. Jesus is coming to them. That's the point of the parable. As you see this, you're scandalized. You're thinking, why would he let them come to him? And Jesus flips it and says, no, I'm coming to them. Like a shepherd looking for the lost. And and Jesus says this is his mission in Luke chapter 19 verse 10. It's actually the interaction with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And, And the religious are saying, why is he at Zacchaeus' house? Doesn't he know what goes on in that house? That's like the crack house. Why is he over there? And he turns around and says, the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. Zacchaeus is lost. That's why I'm here. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost, the apostle Paul tells us. And so Jesus says, what you see before you, tax collectors and sinners coming to me, you actually see me coming to find them, and you see good news for you. This picture is good news for you. If you consider yourself lost today, if you consider yourself a sinner today, if you consider yourself ungodly today, there's really good news for you. Jesus is coming to you. That's what the parable is to teach us. Jesus is pursuing you. Some of you would say here today, my life is a mess. I've tried it all. I've tried to fix it myself. I've sinned greatly. You you don't even understand the type of sin that I've been involved with. I would never tell you. I would never tell you in my most candid moments the deepest, darkest sin that has gone through my mind and felt in my heart, the sin that has, been, that has been done in this body, I would never express it again. You don't even understand how bad I am. Oh, I've got good news for you. You're the one Jesus came for. The one who would 
try to hide all of that, put it to the side, put some Bible study on top of it, some church attendance on top of it, some plastic social media, verse quoting, memes on top of it, and act like it doesn't exist. Oh, you're missing the shepherd that's come for you. You're standing around saying, what are you doing here? I don't need you. I can fix this myself. But if you would say today, I am a great sinner who has sinned greatly. You have a great shepherd that is tracking you down. That's why you're here today. That's why you're here today. See, you thought you were in control this morning. You set that alarm back or forward last night, however you do that. My cell phone does it for me. And you said, I'm going to go to church with an hour less sleep today. And you thought you were in control. You got up, you got dressed, and you're saying that you wish you had had another cup of coffee about right now. Try preaching with one less cup of coffee. And you think you're in control. You're not. Jesus brought you here because he is searching for you. And some of you come here today and you think Jesus is somebody who has shunned you your whole life. You grew up in church where there were all these rules, all this legalism, and you were trying to meet some sort of standard, believe the right thing, say the right thing, memorize enough verses, do the right thing. And your picture, because of leaders in your life, because even maybe your parents, is Jesus is someone who is constantly pushing you away until you're good enough. And that's not the picture of Jesus in the Bible. Jesus is the one who tracks down the worst sinners like a shepherd who is willing to fight for them, like a shepherd who pushes back brush and thickets and thorns and he reaches in and he grabs that lost lamb and he puts it on his shoulder and he carries it home. And that's why some of you are here today, to be carried home. Oh, would you believe in Jesus, the good shepherd? He's tracking you down. And notice verse 7, So I tell you, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, now the point here is they don't think they need repentance. They are righteous, so they don't repent. And he says, in heaven, heaven's not standing around clapping for the righteous scribes and Pharisees, saying, good job, good job, you're so good. No, heaven is screaming cosmic worship over the lost one who will barely turn their eyes to Jesus, who, who, who is so in shame and guilt, they wouldn't even think to hold anything up to God that, thinking that it would please him. Heaven is rejoicing when they turn to the shepherd and say, come get me. Come get me. I can't find you. You found me. Come get me. He says there is rejoicing, more rejoicing in heaven over the one meth addict than over the 99 unconverted Southern Baptists who think they're Christians because they're on a church roll. Mmm, that hurt. But that's the way the kingdom works. The 99, they don't even make the news in heaven. The one, the one lost who repents, there's a party. And notice again, there is an emphasis on joy here. One of the things that you've got to understand, even as a Christian, God's not angry with you for repenting. Sometimes that's what makes repentance so hard for us. 
is because we think God is going to be upset with me if I actually admit and turn from these things. Then God's going to have to deal with me. Then, then God's going to have to put up with my stuff. Then he's going to have to forgive me, maybe even again as a Christian who already believes the gospel. And you're paralyzed by that fear that God's going to be frustrated with you. Notice what this text is trying to teach us. Heaven delights in your repentance. He, heaven, not just the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but we see in context, heaven throws a party when you repent. God's not mad. He's not saying, I can't believe you would repent. Dang it. I was hoping you'd never do that. As a parent, you don't think that way about your kids. You're constantly pleading with them to do the right thing. You're constantly saying, don't mess your life up. That's stupid. That's foolish. That's not wise. And if they would ever turn and say to you, you know what, you're right. You're not going to go, dang it. I was hoping you'd never do that. Now I have to forgive you. Now I have to show you how to do things. Now you don't do that with your kids. God doesn't do that with you. When there is repentance in your life and you say, sin is not good for me. Sin is bad for me. And you turn to the Father through Jesus and you believe the gospel is true and you pursue fellowship with God. He's not shunning you. He's not even saying, okay, we'll see if you're serious. Okay, we'll see. We'll see. Only time will tell. No, when you repent, there is rejoicing in heaven. In Zephaniah, God is pleading with his people to repent. And he tells them there's going to be judgment. He tells them that he's going to wipe out the face of the earth as a warrior. And he tells them, if you repent, he says, the Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And this is a beautiful, beautiful phrase in the Bible. He will exult over you with loud singing. Isn't that beautiful? When you repent, God sings. Imagine God singing. The one who created the universe by his word. And when you repent, he sings. I'm not going to try to sing right now. That would be the opposite effect in the sermon. You'd say that's horrible. But the most glorious, the most perfect, the loudest galactic song of worship over you, over you. He's created magnificent mountains. He's created the ocean. He's created the world. And yet he sings over you when you repent. He's delighted in your repentance. And so we actively seek the delight of God by repenting. You embrace joy as a Christian when you say, yes, it's true, I'm a sinner. A sinner. And yes, it's true, the, the, the gospel is true, God forgives sinners. When you live there, there is a singing over your life. God is taking great joy and delight over you and in you. He loves you the way he loves Jesus. He can't love Jesus more. He can't delight in you more as you confess and you repent and you turn and you believe the gospel. And Jesus says, okay, if y'all don't get it, verse 8, what about a woman? Probably a widow here who has saved her whole life. She has 10 silver coins, each worth a day's wage. And she loses one. What's she going to do? She's not going to stop till she finds it. 
Sun goes down, she's lighting lamps throughout the house. She begins to sweep, begins to sweep the floor, looking for her one lost coin. She's not saying, well, at least I have, at least I have nine more. What's the big deal? No, that one is of value. She's got to find it. And the point is how diligently she looks for it. The emphasis is on the looking for the sinner. Notice verse 9, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors. And by the way, this wasn't, she couldn't put this on Facebook, an event, invite. She would have to send her kids out throughout the neighborhood in the middle of the night, or she would go out beating on doors. I found my lost coin. I found it. I asked y'all to pray that I would find it. I have found the lost coin. Come on back. Come back to my house. We're going to have some tea, bagels. We're going to celebrate. I guess that's what women, how they celebrate. (laughs) We're going to celebrate the lost coin. And her friends would look at her. You are the weirdest. What are you doing up knocking on our door? But she's so excited. She says, rejoice with me. And here Jesus says, so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But before the angels, not just the angels. Sometimes we read that, we think about evangelism, missions, and we think when someone believes the gospel, it's just the angels. No. No, it's before the angels who represent the presence of God. All of heaven, including God himself, rejoices has a party when one sinner turns from their sin and turns to Christ. Heaven celebrates. Heaven is, yes, Jesus found him. Heaven's not standing around thinking. The angels in heaven are like, man, I hope he never believes the gospel. I hope he never believes the gospel. I hope she never believes the gospel. No, it's as if the angels are, are, are on edge going, please believe the gospel. I can't wait till he believes the gospel. We kind of know how this is going. And we know she's making a a mess of her life right now. And yet we see Jesus working. We see from here, we see how Jesus is working in her life. Oh, she shouldn't have done that. Oh, that was horrible for him. Look at the mess he's making. Oh, but here here he goes to that meeting. And he's going to sit down and he's going to hear the gospel for the first time. Oh, he didn't believe Oh, he's going to hear it again. Oh, he's going to hear it again. He's going to go to church. He's going to hear it again. Oh, he's about to make a big mistake if he's trying to reject Christ because he's about to open up that Bible. And the Word of God opens up his heart, opens up her heart. She gets down on her knees and she pleads the mercy of Christ because of the cross and resurrection. And all of heaven erupts in this galactic party rejoicing because one sinner would believe the gospel. Oh, that may be your life here today. Heaven is on edge looking for you to believe. And there will be a great party for you as you repent. Even the Christian who's here today, God delights in your repentance. He doesn't push you away. He says, come on in. We'll work it out. I knew you were high maintenance. I knew you'd be a mess. Oh, but I'm so glad you repented. You're learning. But for the sinner who repents versus the righteous who never repent, there's a great party. The joy of the kingdom is seeking and finding and celebrating. But the point also is that it annoys others. The party thrown for the lamb, 
the neighbors who are woken up in the middle of the night, some of them are like, go back to bed, girl. We don't, we, there's not time for a party. You're wasting your money on these parties for sinners. And that's exactly what the religious and the righteous standing toward Jesus would be saying. Why are you so excited about this? Why are you doing this? I'll never forget, I got to a church as a youth pastor and we had a van ministry. And this van ministry would go to some really part, bad parts of town. And we were bringing in kids of different ethnicity, kids from all kinds of horrible backgrounds on Wednesday night. And they were hearing the gospel. And some of them started believing the gospel. And then I, I had to have that parent meeting that I knew was coming with parents who had been in the church for years. And they sat me down and said, why are we doing this? Why are we letting them come? And I would say they're, they're believing the gospel. And, and I'll never forget one lady who stood up in the meeting and says, yeah, but what if they marry my daughter? And my heart broke. And, and I, I asked her, I said, so them believing the gospel, trusting in Christ, you, you would rather them go to hell because fear they might date your daughter one day? What if they're Christians? What if they turn into the most godly man you've ever seen? Don't you want them because they're Christians following Christ to date your daughter? And it broke my heart. But it was a reminder that you can talk about a good gospel that you never really believed. And that you can talk about good doctrine and sing songs about Jesus pleading your cause. Jesus righting your wrong. You can plead a call. You, you, you can pray prayers in the name of Jesus, this advocate who it's his blood and his righteousness before God that accepts you and never really believe it. Because you don't think you need it. Because if you needed it, you wouldn't look at the van kids and, and go, oh, what are they doing here? Because the question is, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Because you're just as lost. You've just airbrushed it a little bit different. You've just cleaned it up. You just have some plastic on top of it. But when you really believe the gospel, you begin to look out at the lost and say, that was me. And as a church, we have to celebrate that. We have to create a culture here that delights in the lost being found. What we want to say here is you can't miss the party. God is saving and finding the lost. And we want to join in by praying and pleading and celebrating when the most wicked among us believe the gospel. When the most wicked, when the most rebellious, our baptisms here should be a little more raucous. Just a little bit. Getting up hooting and hollering. For you Yankees, that means celebrating. <laughs> it should be a little more raucous. You should be throwing parties in your homes for new believers. Parties. Parties. Not just we're going to have some snacks and desserts. Parties. 
For they invite their friends. That's exactly what Jesus did for the tax collectors. We have wedding showers, have baby showers. Let's start having new believer hooplas. That's just that's the word we're using for things we don't know what to describe. <laughs> Parties. When someone believes the gospel, it should be just exciting as all those other occasions. You should celebrate those things. You should be happy when those things happen. You are mimicking heaven. But that doesn't happen until we all embrace our lostness. Until we all have a sense of joy. I was lost and now I'm found. Oh, I'm so glad he found you too. There's no joy in the brooding, curmudgeonness, judgmentalism where we sit around and say, those people, those people, the world, the world. Now go look in the mirror. It's that person. It's that person who sinned against God and deserves hell. That person in the mirror. Not those people. You've got to personally understand your lostness instead of pointing out the lostness of others. You know why you do that? Because it makes you feel better about your lostness. If I can find people that are more lost than me, then I'm not going to realize, or I'm not going to feel so lost. Well, guess what? If you don't feel lost, you can't know the shepherd who searches for the lost. And you don't know the joy of being found. There's no joy in being worried and paralyzed constantly by others and the standard that they don't meet that you have erected for them. Oh my God, goodness. Uh, did, you hear, did you hear what they just said? Did you hear, did you hear what they did? did you, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Does he really believe that? Oh my goodness. There's no joy in that. No, there's joy in saying, oh, I was just as bad and God was patient with me. He was kind with me. He was gracious with me. He persevered with me. He loved me. I deserve to be condemned so I can't condemn. I have embraced and engaged and, and, and sought the, the, the condemnation that Jesus embraced and was engaged in for me. Oh, some of you are missing out on a celebration today. You're missing out on it. You even hear this sermon and it just, it, it irritates you. It irritates you. Because you don't know what it means to be lost and found. And you're saying, why are you saying that? And you might as well be saying to Jesus, what are you doing here? Because this confrontation is jarring to you. And I know some of you have been in church your whole life. You see, we began the story, and it was all about the tax collectors and the sinners and all the bad people out there. No, they're not here. It's about you. This parable is about you, and it's very pointedly about some of you here today who grew up in church, and you went to church your whole life, and you're humiliated today to say, well, I never really believed it. You're scared to death. What are people going to think? My grandmother, when she was 65 years old, She'd been in church her whole life, WMU director. She'd been on mission trips. She had, she had done all kinds of things. And she stood in her living room before a, a fire that my granddad had made on a winter night. And she realized, if I die right now, I will spend eternity under God's fire. And she had never believed the gospel. And she would blow you away with her righteous deeds in the context of the church. You would be junior varsity, not even on the team compared to her. And yet she got down on her knees, believed the gospel, and was baptized 
in a church where she had helped plant. And it's an amazing story. And I only share that because that's some of you here today. You, you, you are so lost, you don't know your lostness. And that's a scary place to be. The sinners know they're lost. I'm not going to argue with you about that. But some, some of you can't feel your lostness today. And for the sake of joy, you need to get lost. You literally need to get lost in this moment. And say, no, it's my sin that alienated me from God. And I never really believed in Jesus. I just sort of went through some motions. I just sort of did some things that made me look better and made me look like a Christian. And the gospel was just another badge that I, that I put on my self-righteous vest before God. And yet it will not save me from hell. And you bow your knees and it's the cross and resurrection and kingdom of Jesus that you believe today. And there's great rejoicing in heaven. Because the good news is God has sent Jesus to find religious twits like myself. And just like many of you here today. The good news is God didn't stand on the porch and say, Y'all come home. Hey, come on home. No. He walked off the porch. He searched all night for you. And some of you here today, he, you got your head down in the manure of your self-righteousness and you can't even see him standing before you. And if you would believe in him in these moments, he will pull you out of that mock, wrap you around his neck, and bring you home. And there will be great rejoicing. And it will not be a distant celebration this time. For some of you, every Sunday morning is distant. It's distant. You're like, I know I'm supposed to be doing this, but I don't get it. Oh, there will be great joy if you would repent today, if you would be the one sinner, the one lost who considers yourself righteous in this moment, but understands you can't compare to the righteousness of Christ, and you believe in Him and you're saved. Oh, may it be true today. Let's pray.